it is time to start. We are in 2 Kings chapter 12. Why don't we stand and read that? It's uh, again an interesting uh, story and uh, real interesting, especially at the end here, some things I want to pull out. 2 Kings chapter 12. Remember, Joash was the child king. He was hidden. And as we saw him last week, and uh, after seven years, uh, he was rightfully put back on the throne. So, in, uh, of course, so the chapter ends, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. Verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash, Jehoash, began to reign. And he reigned forty years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibia of Beersheba. And Jehoash did not did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Nevertheless, the high priests were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offering on the high places. Jehoash said to the priest, All the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money for the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, three different ways, we'll talk about that in a moment, let the priest take each from his donor and let him repair the house wherever he needs, any need of repairs is discovered. But by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priest had made no repairs on the house. Therefore, King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priests with and said to them, Why are you not preparing the house? Now therefore take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people, and that they should not repair the house. Then Jehoiada, the, the priest, took a chest and bore a hole in the lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. The priests who guarded the threshold put it in all the money that was brought to the house of the Lord, and whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the, sec- the king's secretary and the high priest came up and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they would give the money that was weighed into the house of the workmen who had oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid out the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord and to the masons and the stone cutters as well as to buy timber and quarried stone for making repairs on the house of the Lord for any outlay for the repairs of the house. But there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or of silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. For that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of the Lord with it. And they did not ask an accounting for the men in, whom, in whose house and hand they had delivered the money to pay out the workmen, for they dealt honestly. The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord, it belonged to the priest. So basically what the, but it, it ended up being that the, the workmen are the ones who got the job done, the priests seemed to have a squat, didn't, just didn't care enough. Verse 17 At that time Haziel the king of Syria went up and fought against Gath and took it, but when Haziel set his face to up against Jerusalem Jehoash king of Judah took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Haziah his Ahaziah's father, the king of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord in the king's house, and sent these to 
Hazael, king of Syria, then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. So, after years of working to build the temple up, he just gives them all right, right away, as soon as uh, there's a, uh, a problem. That's right. Now, the rest of the acts of, jo- of Joash, and see, notice that the names, the, the forms of the names sometimes changes, which makes it kind of difficult sometimes. And all they did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Judah? His servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo, in the house, in the way that goes down to Selah. It was Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehoshabad, the son of Shomar, his servants, who struck him down so that he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Amaziah's son reigned in his place, all right? Stop there. So he ended up as well. If you go back and you read the account in Second Chronicles, you you, you kind of see that he ends up just you know falling apart uh, as far as you know the service to the Lord. Uh, he allows things to uh, to to, uh, and we'll see why here in a moment. But uh, the, the worship of false worship to take place and. He gives away all the treasures of the house of Israel, at least a lot of it, to save his skin. And uh, the people just, uh, so, you know, a couple of his servants just get tired of it and kill him. And so he ends up miserably. And, of course, I think one of the points of all of this is that we see someone who uh, starts well, right, and he doesn't finish well. And I think that's certainly something to be learned here that we don't want to end up like he did. So... Uh, we just remember from last week, we can be on the front lines of God's kingdom and not be famous. God uses even the smallest acts to do great things. Talk about uh, the, the wife of Jehoiada who had hid, uh, perhaps her, who was her nephew, Joash, uh, when he was in danger. Uh, our first loyalty is always to the Lord. It is family. If it is family, excuse me, Jesus says you're not fit for the kingdom of God. I know that in a sense maybe is a little stark, but at the end of the day, is he's not, of course, God gave us family. Family's a wonderful thing. He's not saying that it's not important, but, but he's saying at the end of the day, even family, your children are given to you, you serve the Lord with. And if you don't use it for that purpose, it's, then you're not, you know, you're not using it as a way for the reasons he gave it to you, and, you're, and Jesus says you're not good for the kingdom of God. Or, well, another way of saying that is you're not in the kingdom of God, because none of us are fit for the kingdom of God in that sense. Reality is found in the Bible, not in Washington, the political correctness of the world, in ge- or the world in general, uh, and that's, of course, couldn't be, that can't be emphasized enough in our day and age, for sure. Well, I think there is a point to be made here. As we look at chapter 12, we learn that God's house has fallen into disrepair, because the nation, and, and in particular the kings, have ignored it. And uh, so uh, the, the, the house represents, of course, the worship of Yahweh. It was uh, part and parcel, the center of the covenant. The covenant couldn't be kept if they did not um, use the temple to, to remove their covenantal sins, right? They'd be cast out of the land. So to let that fall into disrepair is basically to disregard God, to disregard the covenant. It was considered to, to be breaking the covenant. And so uh, there are consequences to that, as, of course, as we read, and you see it, it, it even at the end of this chapter. 
And so a point to be made is that our love and cold, coldness towards the Lord, I think, plays a, a large part in our effectiveness to serve Him. In other words, we can't let the, the, the graces God has given us to build us up in the faith, to keep us warm in the Lord, whether it be as we you know study Bible study, the church, and fellowship, prayer. If we are lax towards those things, then, then we're going to suffer for that. And again, it might, doesn't mean that the Lord's necessarily going to take away our job or make us sick, although that certainly is something that he might do. He chases us in different ways, but it's going to, uh, we're going to become cold. And if you're wondering, well, why don't I enjoy the sermons, or why don't I really enjoy reading or studying God's word, or, you know, why do I seem to enjoy the things of the world more than the things of Christ? Well, it's because of your effort, you're, you're well, Chris could be, you're just plain lost, but even for a Christian, when we don't put an effort, if we don't pursue Christ, if we don't rebuild the temple, if we don't keep it, keep our, ourselves, uh, firm in, in pursuing the Lord, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be consequences. And I think that's one of the things that we can see here in this text, he wasn't passionate about, well, he was at this point, right? But obviously before this, they hadn't been passionate towards the things of God. And so they, uh, they, they pay for it. And of course, as he does spend all these years repairing the temple, it, uh, another point can be made that the Lord kind of keeps them safe while they're pursuing, while they're building the temple. But now they've got it all done. And you think, well, we've done our duty for the Lord and now all is well. And that's when the Lord sends the enemy in to see, okay, you've spent these years, in a sense, worshiping me, working for me. Now let's see if it's real. Haziel comes in from Syria, and what does he do? Well, you, you see that this repair of the house of the Lord ha- hasn't been from the heart of worship because he fears man more than the Lord. And so he, all that hard work he gives right back to Hazel because he fears Hazel more than the Lord. So it was all for naught. It really, it wasn't, it wasn't real. And, uh, again, so I think uh, there, there's that, there's, there's that, um, lesson that we need to, to look at this, that, uh, it's possible for us to, to have, be very active, do things, and yet it's not really who we are. And that's, uh, not what a Christian wants to be. Certainly what we're seeing in our uh, study of the Sermon on the Mount, that if, if, if all this doesn't arise from a right attitude or from a heart, then it uh, isn't um, of any value. So over and over again, we see that the Lord will not be presumed upon. And I think this, this is what we see here. He's really being presumed upon. It's not real. And uh, he proves that at the end. Uh, that the Lord will be pursued. If, we, if he's going to be found, uh, remember James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It doesn't mean that we don't need God and his working in us to draw near to him. So God's not saying, okay, look, this is all up to you. We need God to, to draw us, but the command is there. We, you know, all men are to draw near to, to God to pursue Him, and uh, so just because God is sovereign and He must do it, doesn't mean that the the duty isn't there, right? And some people get confused with all this because we talk about God being sovereign and man's responsibility. Well, both are true, 
But this fact that God is responsible does, or God is sovereign doesn't mean that we aren't responsible to do it, right? And so, you know, this shouldn't really be an issue for us to, to read. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It, it doesn't mean that it's all up to us. But this is, this is why God created mankind to pursue him, to do all things for his glory. And that's what he's saying there. And, of course, part of the way to do that then is to cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Examine yourself. If you want to be enjoy the Lord, you're going to have to weed out the sin and the things that dishonored him. And so the Lord uh, well, might be gracious to revive a people just because it's his will to do so, but, but by and large, it, what's going to happen is that it's going to be, he's going to respond to people who are pursuing him. And uh, our church and our lives won't be pleasing to him unless he works in us to love him supremely. That's for, that's for sure. But it's kind of like I've been reading a book where this pastor in the 1800s, he goes around and uh, he's uh, he's written down and he must have a, a, lot, a mind, lot better than mine because he, he writes down in detail these conversations that he has over months sometimes with these people. Which so and so it's a really interesting case study for a pastor. But anyway, I, I, I can't. I, I don't think I can remember all the conversations like he does. But anyway, one of the problems he always has is where he has a number of times is people. No, they need to be saved. They know they're sinners. They know that their only hope is Christ. But they say, well, God hasn't given me repentance. God hasn't given me the feeling I need. I, I don't have the heart I need. And it's like they've confused the sovereignty of God with uh, their response. And, uh, and you know, so he, you know, he, so he spends a lot of time working with them saying, look, uh, the, the command, obey the command. Ask God to... Uh, give you uh, repentance to add, but pray to the Lord and well, I can't pray to the Lord because I don't have the right heart he said, well you got it backwards you pray to God and give me the right heart but but pray and ask God to pursue him don't think that because God is sovereign that, that your duty is to just wait for God to do something if you have a desire if you know the truth then act upon it and again it's sometimes it, it's hard for us to discern those things because we were so concerned about God's sovereignty that we, we, we use that as a, to, to, uh, not do our part. And, uh, and again, so whether we understand it, we can put it all, under, understand it all and, and define it all in scripture isn't the issue. In Acts, remember the apostles said, uh, you know, someone said, what do I need to be saved? Repent and believe the gospel. They didn't sit there and try to help them understand how all this is going to work, that God had to work first, and you can't do anything until God saves you, or until God works in your heart. Yeah, all that's true, and we learn it in Scripture, but but, it, but at the end of the day, what the sinner needs to, uh, who knows he's a sinner, needs to do is be pointing to the cross, and to respond to that, you know, and uh, let God do his part. And uh, so anyway, in, in the first three verses, we, we repeat what we read so often in, in these uh, accounts that um, you got a king who does right for the Lord, but but 
not quite as well as he should. His heart isn't quite where it should be because he allows the high places to uh, go on. In the last chapter, we know that it was worse than that. He wasn't. He didn't do anything that was right for the Lord. He completely abandoned the worship of Yahweh, and things got really bad. But what what is neat about this, as we come to chapter twelve, is that. While David's light had almost been extinguished, uh, and things had really gotten low in Israel, or in this case Judah, yet we come to the next king, and things are right back to normal, in a sense. And the point being is that um, God is doing his is working out his covenant, and while sometimes things are tumultuous, sometimes they're not, they're very peaceful, uh, God always comes out triumphant, things continue, his plan continues as normal, because uh, everything is normal, because the Lord's in control, and so it's kind of neat here, it's each chapter we get to, uh, let me see, it's like the devil tries all these different ways to stop God's plan, but, you know, God deals with it, and things go on, because this is all, you know, ultimately part of his plan. So, uh, it's, it's just kind of neat to see how that no matter what's going on, it all ends up being, you know, the Lord never misses a beat. Um, so, his heart was not totally right. And what we see here, if you read Second Chronicles in particular, you find out that the reason he is faithful to the Lord has more to do with Jehoiada, the high priest, uh, than it does his own heart. Because as soon as Jehoiada dies, uh, the evil people, the evil princes, uh, you know, probably some uh, different, some people that were left over from Athaliah's uh, reign, uh, whatever, they come and they get him to immediately abandon Yahweh and start worshiping the bales again and, and doing that kind of stuff. So, um, that, and that's an issue that we want to talk about too. We parallel to our own situation. We, we want to not spend, and I kind of already have said this, but we don't want to spend time and energy and years, uh, building up our faith. Uh, in the word and in church and in, in our fellowship with one another and then a buckle as soon as we are faced with some sort of problem, right? Uh, we are not to give away the blessings of God like he does uh, with, by, as soon as something, someone comes along with a temptation or some calamity comes along and we just give it all away, all that we've worked for for all those years. And as a pastor, I've seen that happen. You know, few things can dishearten a pastor more than seeing someone in his flock make a profession and uh, seem to grow and, uh, you know, is in there for years and then something happens and, and they're gone and, and they just give it all away. So... Again, the first great lesson of this passage to me is what uh, Jehoash does uh, at the end of his life, after Jehoiada has died. And so, um, make sure I have it. Yeah, okay. So, uh, in Second Chronicles 
24-7, it says that for the sons of the wicked, Athaliah had broken into the house of God and even used the holy things of the house of the Lord for the bales. And uh, you find out that uh, after, at the end of Jehoash's life, or, you know, towards the end, when he falls away from the Lord, that uh, wicked people have gone in there and they have, uh, they have destroyed these things. And God had to rebuke the Israelites many times for their unfaithfulness to give him what he should, what he is due. But they, uh, one of the things I think we see here is stewardship. Because the reason the house was in disrepair is not just time and, you know, a couple hundred years had elapsed since it had been built. But you've got people who have no regard for the Lord, breaking in and stealing the things that were needed to serve. You know, the, the things that we're talking about here, the gold and silver things are the utensils, the, the things that they would use to burn incense, the shovels, the things they would use to clean. Uh, you know, all, all these kind of things were, were necessary, the plates for the bread and so forth. And uh, they, had, they had no concept of that, that what I have, what we have is to be used of the Lord. And so I think another thing that we can, another, the second big application we can use in this passage is we think about the fact that the, the money was being given to build, the, to repair the temple, and the priests could care less. And they were just ignoring it. It was, it was just piling up in a sense. But it wasn't being used for what it was meant to be used for. And then finally, the, uh, they had to, they turned it over to the masons and the, and the stonecutters and so forth, and they got the job done. But, um, Malachi 3a here reminds us that we have a responsibility to be stewards uh, for the Lord of what we have. So, will a man rob God? You are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed thee in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouses, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And again, the storehouses are again kind of think much like what we're reading in our text. The, the money was to be sent there to to keep the service, the worship of God, and the and the, the work of the priest of continuing. And they weren't doing it. Well, why weren't they doing it? Well, they felt they they needed that money more for something else. So the first priority was not to worship and to serve the Lord. That money, I need that to uh, buy bread. And the Lord says, you kind of got it backwards. You bring, which again what was required of them under the covenant, you bring the money and you take care of my house, and I'll take care of your house. But if you think that you can, uh, you, you've got to worry about taking care of yourself at the expense of worshiping me and obeying me, you've got this whole thing backwards. And I think what we're reading there is exactly what kind of, we're seeing an illustration of that in our text. That they uh, did not see the value of keeping that house uh, and, and keeping the uh, all the uh, utensils and things uh, ready so that the priests could do their job. So at this point, Joash wants the temple to have the necessary repairs and calls upon the offerings of the law to be used to that. It mentions three ways, um, in case you maybe weren't familiar with those. You had uh, 
the normal temple taxes that were taken up in a yearly, kind of like the tithes. Then you had money that one had to give when a, when a boy became uh, considered an adult, probably I think at 13, uh, that they had to pay a certain tax at that point. And then you just had the free will offerings that people give. And uh, so you had these things, and the priests though, were lazy, they were, they were you know, not godly, and so nothing happens with it. And so Jehoiada, the high priest, installs a box, kind of when the king kind of, you know, kicks him in the seat of the pants and says, hey, what's going on? Let's get the, this thing going. He installs a box with a hole in the lid, and, the, and then the, the people would give to that. But even that initially wasn't being used for the repairs. I've been in churches where uh, that's how the giving was. And perhaps this is where it came from. You know, they had a box in the back, and that's how people gave. They didn't pass a plate. Uh, you know, I don't think it matters one way or another. Um, I don't think you know, you know the Bible says that you have to take up money in a certain way. I think, unfortunately, uh, and this is a conversation for another time, but unfortunately, I think that when you use the box in the back, it, it doesn't help your your offering. And I guess we could probably discuss why that is, but not to make too much of it. But I think it's interesting that when you pass the plate you generally tend to get more than when you just leave it for people to do it because they want to do it, and they do it without in the, in the public eye. But So I think that's kind of interesting. But anyway, that's what's going on here. But again, like I say, there's something about a stewardship and responsibility. The priests were supposed to take the money and do something with it, and they weren't doing it, so eventually they, they, they're removed and, and the responsibility is given to somebody else. And I think that's a good lesson for us to remember, uh, not just as Christians, as we said here in Malachi 3, that everything God gives us is to be used in a proper way to serve the Lord, but we are to be good stewards of God's money in the church, and we, and we expect uh, people to do with it as uh, they're told to do, and there's a, to be accountable, and if they're not, then they would be removed, right? That's one reason why we don't just Give people money because they come in and ask for it. You know, uh, not that sometimes we might not do that, but as a, certainly on a consistent basis, if we don't just give money to people so they, and there's no accountability. Because if you're just going to use it to become dependent upon us or somebody else, then what have we done for you? We haven't helped you. So I think the Bible talks about accountability. We don't have time to get into all that today, but, um, that you won't, you don't, no one is just free to do whatever they want to do with whatever they, they have. Because especially Christians, you know better, right? But anyway, we come to, to chapter verse 7 and the whole thing falls apart. As we said, we've already talked about here, uh, the temple gets plundered to pay off enemies. Um, it is not hard to see that, that spiritual, I think, application that all the, the, the work, all the edification has, has gone for nothing. And so, you know, why build up the treasures of the Lord if you're going to just um, give them all away in the first sign of trouble, right? Which is what he does. And so, uh, it's just, it's covenant breaking. And we'll see uh, in the coming chapters that God hates it, that it doesn't do any good, that what happens is that he has weakened himself by giving away these treasuries. He has uh, enriched his enemies. So 
So before long, they're just walking in and taking whatever they want because you've, you've given away your strength, and, and that's what we do. When we fail to trust the Lord and we fear men and we start to do whatever they want us to do or we, we, we trust in the world um, and not the Lord, we weaken ourselves and we embolden our enemy and uh, we pay the consequences. And so, you know, it's just, to me it's not all that difficult to kind of see the spiritual um, correlation there. So all those years of repairing the temple had been a sham. It had not increased the glory of the Lord in Jehoash's eyes at all. And in the end, we see that such attempts to bribe the Lord's enemies just result in the eventual plunder by the enemy um, anyway. So, we might ask ourselves, what are these treasuries that they give the enemy? Uh, and I think these are the things needed to serve the Lord in the temple. They, it, it was all the utensils, it was all the golden, the, the, the goblets, the, the tongs, the, all the, the things that they, the censers that burned the incense, all these things that, uh, you know, have been accumulated over the years. And without them, though, the problem is, is that without them, they really couldn't serve the Lord. They, they could not burn sacrifices and carry the blood uh, to where it needed to be, you know, like on the Day of Atonement. They couldn't uh, have the manna where it needed to be and all this kind of stuff because they'd given away. So, it, in a real sense, it was needed to worship the Lord. And it just didn't mean enough to them to keep them and to defend them and ask God to defend them because their life was more important than the Lord was and they feared man more than God. And so we see here why we need a sincere love in our hearts if we're going to serve the Lord effectively that religious activity, God, you see why religious activity isn't enough because the, the, the activity was abandoned. They didn't care about that. God wants hearts, because if your heart isn't, if you love the Lord with all your heart, then you will not, you will not compromise with the enemy. And that's, of course, what 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us, that, that love, or activity without love is just a lot of noise. So, you know, this idea of stewardship, our lives, our bodies, our families, our jobs, are given to us to serve the Lord, and when we use them to serve ourselves and not God, then we are giving them to the enemy. We're making a mockery of our profession. So, um, again, over in Second Chronicles 24, but after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them, and they ab- abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the ashram. And the ashram was the female counterpart counterpart to Baal worship. Again, it was all very sexually explicit, just just a disgusting thing, but very fleshly. And they served the ashram and the idols. So, rightly so, the wrath comes upon Judah and Jerusalem for their for their guilt. And this is why, you know, Haziel comes right in and basically takes what he wants, because they have abandoned the Lord. But the interesting thing here is that it was the death of Jehoiada where this takes place. And um, what we see here is that there are those who, by all appearances, seem to love the Lord and are doing well. 
And then all of a sudden, somebody close to them dies or leaves, and, and, and they, their life falls apart. And you begin to realize that, well, their love for the Lord really wasn't all that strong. It was a love for their loved one. You know, the, the, the husband loved for the wife, and she dies, and all of a sudden, he's, he's not in church anymore, or vice versa. And it becomes apparent that their strength lies not in their love for the Lord, but in another person. And that's kind of what we see here, I think. And so it would be good to examine our hearts in light of that. It, does my relationship with the Lord hinge mostly on another person's influence? Well, let's, let's be uh, you know, fair in all this. We do need each other's influence. And I'm thankful, for instance, for my wife and her influence. I, I feel like without her, I wouldn't be the guy I am today in a lot of ways, right? And I hope she can say the same thing about me. We need each other. And uh, that so that's good. And we are to encourage each other, right? But at the same time, I like to think that I love the Lord enough that if the Lord takes my wife, that nothing really is going to change as far as I'm still going to serve him. You know, I might have different struggles and all that, but I'm, I'm still going to love the Lord. And if the Lord takes a loved one, perhaps your child dies, which is probably the, the worst of all those kind of things in some ways, or takes your job or whatever it might be, does my Bible study and church attendance, my emotional stability depend upon those things? And once, if the Lord takes them away, I, I can't have a life anymore. See, that's not good. That's not ending well. See, that's what happened here with Jehoash. Jehoiada dies, and, and his, his spiritual life, such as it is, at least in typology, is over. And, and there's something wrong with that. So, you know, wise, if your husband says he's not going to church anymore, it's a little bit different um, way of looking at this. Now, he doesn't die. He just says, you know what? I'm finished. Are you, gonna, are you still going to be in church the next Sunday? Husbands, if your wife says that, are you still going to be in church the next Sunday? You see? You know, because your responsibility doesn't change just because your husband has decided that he's done with it. So just beware how you answer that because, there's some, you know, if you're... Faith is all wrapped up, and your ability to obey is all wrapped up in what your spouse does or whoever. Something's wrong. So, as we read there in chapter 24 of Second Chronicles, he's re- Jehoiada is replaced by men who don't love the Lord, and they lead the king right down the merry path of destruction. Well, let's just close with what I think is one of the more interesting things in this whole passage. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think it's in our text. I think it's in, yeah, um, yeah. In Second Chronicles, we get a little bit of an idea of what happens here. Then the, then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so they lead... Okay, you know, I, I'm leaving out something here. Make sure, let me just get back here. Um, that's my fault. I know that 
Jehoiada confronts Joash, Jehoash, and he, and Jehoash kills him because Jehoiada has done something that has, um, and I apologize for not, um, leaving that out because I was so kind of interested in Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, but I kind of forgot to give a part of it. Um, Jehoiada, the, the king kills Jehoiada because he's kind of upset him about something. In a very unjust way. And of course then he falls into all this idolatry. And so his son, Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, and this comes and he confronts the king for, for doing that. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Alright, so, he, he says, you know, um, you have mistreated my father. He doesn't, and of course, you notice here that he doesn't even really bring that up. And you have to go again to, and read before this to, 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 to kind of see the full story, and I apologize. Um, but he says that the big thing is not that you killed my father, but you have forsaken the Lord, and, and you're serving all these idols. Well, they didn't want to hear that either, so they conspired against him. And by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness of Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. And I'm, well, yeah, okay, I'm going to see about that. I, I think I got that wrong, and I, and I apologize. I, I should have looked at that this morning. Because one thing I want to say about Jehoiada that was interesting, because again, he's kind of what's holding Jehoash back, right? He lives for 130 years, which was kind of unusual, even back then, right? And so I thought, well, what about, what, what a picture of the grace of the Lord that, um, he lets Jehoiada live for 130 years, but even that influence for that long doesn't, isn't enough for Jehoiada, for a Joash. And once Jehoiada dies, Jeho, um, Joash is, you know, again, brought right into idolatry. And so, Zechariah comes, excuse me for that, I, I, I was, I was thinking I, I probably had got that wrong, so I, I was about to say that when you said that, so thanks. Anyway, so Je- Zechariah, um, you know, get, confronts him, a faithful, like his dad, he's a very faithful prophet in that sense, right? And so it says in verse 22, Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, when Zechariah was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Now again, I don't know what his motives for that. I mean, I think he had a right to say that in a sense, because they were, they were not just killing him, but they were doing so in opposition to the Lord. But the interesting thing about this is that this is what Jesus refers to all this later on in Matthew 23. And so we begin to see here why some things happen in the Old Testament because it's, it's, it's speaking about something further later on, right? So Jesus, this is of course right before he is about to be crucified. And uh, he says, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of you will kill and crucify 
Some you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town. I think this is, some look at this as all things that were going to happen after Jesus died, um, which it's very possible that he sent some people, but you know, but I don't I don't think that's really it, what's going on here. I think he's first of all referring to what he has been doing for a number of years, and they've killed the prophets. Isaiah they say was sawn in half, uh, and, and different. The, Jeremiah was mistreated. Some of them. So it, it's certainly a representative of how they have been treating the prophets, and of course ultimately it is what they were going to do to Jesus, the the final prophet. They kill him too, right? So that, verse 35, you may come, make, so, so he says, anyway, you're, you're killing and will kill all the, these, these godly prophets, right, who are doing my will. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, which uh, we read that, but that's where he was when he was killed. Truly, I say to you, all these things have come upon this generation. So the interesting thing about Zechariah, now, now there are those who say they don't think that that can't be Zechariah because uh, they say it's Berechiah's his father, not um, Jehoiada. I, I think that the, the answer to that is because that those names actually mean the exact same thing, Jehoiada and Zechariah. And so that the, the at some point the translation, they translated it literally the meaning and not necessarily the name. I think that you have to, in other words, you, you know, Jesus says this, you have to say, well, you know, what else could it be, right? So, Jesus here mentions the very first man to be martyred in the Old Testament and the very last man to be martyred. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't other people martyred. Like I think Isaiah was martyred later on. But of the, but that's not recorded in the Old Testament. It, uh, Zechariah is the last martyr that's recorded in the Old Testament. So Jesus is basically... And, and in fact, if you read the way the Jews... Had the had positioned all the books in the Old Testament. Uh, this would the, the, this account that we're reading here in Second Kings two would have been right at the north towards the very end anyway. And so Jesus is referring to that. And so what he's saying here is that there have been my faithful prophets throughout history, and uh, your you your rejection of me is in the same spirit of all those who killed uh, God's faithful people, well, even not just prophets, but just God's people, throughout history, you're doing the same thing, of course, but they're doing it against um, um, the, 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 you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think what he's saying, he's, he's, not, he's referring to that, because just as Zechariah, when he's dying, says, May the Lord avenge you, so the Lord as he gets ready to die, basically says, because of, the, of your committing the same type of sin, all these things are going to come upon this generation, just as they did in Zechariah's day. And uh, so I think that's kind of interesting, because we know, of course, that that's exactly what happened. Um, 
that in 70 AD, uh, they paid the price for rejecting the Messiah. So what we're seeing here in Second Kings is a little, mic- a little picture, a prophecy in typology of what was going to happen in Jesus' day. So Zechariah, in a sense, becomes a picture or a type of Jesus Christ. And I just think that's extremely interesting just to show the continuity of Scripture and is another way that we see Christ in the Old Testament and uh, and so forth. So any questions or comments? Sorry, I kind of beat that up very badly in, in one way, but at least we, we got there, right? Um, all right, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, first of all, just using uh, sometimes... Uh, imperfect servants to convey your word and to uh, do your work and uh, certainly I uh, we fit that bill and uh, but we thank you Lord that um, once we get it all straight we see the beauty of God's word we see that this is not a book written by men that we it's a book that that foretells of Christ and his work all through the Old Testament and we find it fulfilled in the new and, and so our, our faith is built up and we are thankful for these things. And, and, the, and then the practical application of Scripture is we see people doing things that, Lord, we would ask you to save us from, to keep us faithful to you, to keep us warm and in pursuit of you, and not a, not let us grow cold in the faith. And, Lord, that we would not grow dependent upon any one person for our faith. Our faith and our strength is in the Lord. And... Um, our, our love for you transcends our love for anybody else. And so, Lord, we are thankful for the, the lessons learned this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.